Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Week two begins in our study of the historic occasion of the gospel first being preached to a group of Gentiles back in Acts chapter 10. Corey Ten Boom and her family, they secretly housed Jews in their home during World War II. And when they were discovered, Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to the German death camp known as Ravensbrück. It was there that Corey would watch many people, including her own sister, face their death. After the war was over, Corey returned to Germany to declare the grace and the forgiveness of God. She knew that the people of the land were without hope, that many were bitter, many were ashamed of their heritage as German people. Well, one day, in the year 1947, as she started to witness to the people, a crowd had gathered together. And as she spoke about sin and the forgiveness that God offers, she saw someone that she recognized. It was a man in an overcoat and a brown hat, working his way toward her. Her heart began to pick up a little bit. Her heart began to race as she realized that the man had been one of the men and one of the guards at Ravensbrook. See, the last time she had seen this man, he wore a blue uniform at the German death camp. It flashed into her mind that this man had been there. When Corey and her sister were forced with the other women of the camp to throw their shoes and their dresses into a large pile and walk past this man completely exposed. This man had been one of the cruelest guards. And now he stood before her with his hand stretched out, wanting to shake hands with her. And then he said this. He said, a fine message, Fräulein. And as he stood there, expressing his agreement in the forgiveness of sins that Christ offers, Corey confessed that even though she had just spoken just minutes before of forgiveness... She pretended to fumble. She pretended to fumble with her pocketbook instead of taking his hand. In her mind, she began to rationalize that no way could this man possibly remember her out of the thousands of women at this death camp. But she remembered him as she stood face to face with one of the men that had put so many people to death. She testified that she stood there and her blood felt like it was freezing, literally freezing in her veins. And when the man said to her, as you were speaking, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I've become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I have done there. Listen to what he said. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. And once again, his hand came out and he said to her, Fräulein, will you forgive me? 
Corey testified that as she stood there, she struggled like every one of us in this room would have struggled. Deeply aware of the own sin that she had in her own life. Knowing how much she depended on the forgiveness of God. But now she stood there wrestling with the ability to forgive. Her own sister Betsy had died in that place. They had suffered at the hands of the Germans. And she wondered if Betsy's slow and terrible painful death could be forgiven so easily with simple words. Corey stated that she knew what she had to do. She knew what the word of God told her, that she must choose to forgive. The man stood there with his hands stretched out. Corey felt coldness in her heart for this man. But you see, here's a lesson. Forgiveness is not an emotion. Forgiveness is a decision, no matter how we may feel about something. So she silently prayed to the Lord, asking him for help, committing that she would at least do this. She would at least stick out her hand and raise up her hand. And so very methodically, she raised up her hand to meet his. But as she did, an incredible thing took place. A warmth began to flood her entire body, bringing tears to her eyes. And then she cried out to the man, I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. And then for a long moment, they stood there grasping onto each other's hands. The former guard of the Nazi death camp and the former prisoner reconciled by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. In her own words, Corey testified that up until this time, she had never known God's love so intensely as she did at that moment. Even then, she knew it was not her love. She had tried on her own. She had tried on her own strength, but she didn't have it. But now it was the power of the Holy Spirit that enabled her to be reconciled with her brother in Christ. Hatred for our fellow man. You know, when we think of it, hatred started all the way back in Genesis 4, didn't it? When Cain killed Abel. All the way back then. The causes are many. You can list pride. You can list jealousy, selfishness. I mean, we all think we're the most important person on the planet, every one of us. 6,000 years later, the situation hasn't changed. Wars are constant around the world. Death is constant. Hatred permeates the sin nature of all mankind. The world needs the message of forgiveness and reconciliation that can only come through the blood of Jesus Christ. In our last study in Acts chapter 10, we looked at the hatred, we looked at the anger that the Jews and Gentiles had for one another that went back centuries and centuries. A Jewish man would actually begin each day in prayer thanking God that he was not a slave, not a Gentile, or a woman. The Jewish men would actually take an oath that promised they would never, ever, ever help a Gentile, even down to the point of asking for directions if they were asked. And ladies, hear me on this. Maybe this is why men do not like asking for directions. If a Jew married a Gentile that was not a proselyte, they would have a funeral back then and consider the person as dead. For their part, the Gentiles sure did their part to hate the Jews. They often said in slander that the Jews worshipped pigs because the Jews, of course, would not eat pigs. 
Now at this point in the time in, in the book of Acts, the church was made up of Hebrew people that believed in Jesus as the Messiah. They understood that it was no longer required to offer the sacrifices because they understood that the sacrifice of Jesus as being the full atonement for their sins. So what did they do as you see in Acts? You see that they began to worship on Sunday instead of just observing the Sabbath to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. But in many, many ways, the early church, the people were still thinking like Jews and still avoiding certain situations and foods that were considered unclean to the Jews. They avoided people that they considered to be less than human. They avoided the Gentiles. Jews referred to them as Gentile dogs. Jews would never spend a night in a Gentile home. And if they absolutely had to buy something from a Gentile, a good Jew would actually take the money that might have been handled, touched by a Gentile, and then the item that they bought also, and they would wash it before they would ever dare use it. Some Jews even went to the point where they had pools in their homes for washing larger things that they would buy, like tables, like chairs. You see, Jewish laws prohibited a Jew from even being with a Gentile. Jewish laws prohibited a Jew from entering a Gentile building. It prohibited them from touching something that was owned by a Gentile. And they were forbidden from accepting the hospitality of the Gentiles. Now, how did this all come about? Well, the Jews were very much aware that the ten northern tribes never really returned to the promised land. They never came back. Sure, a remnant survived, but most of them never returned. And that was all because of idolatry. And so this drove the Jews in the first century to have a deep, deep, deep fear of ever following into idol worship again. So they did everything they could to make sure that that never happened again, to keep themselves as separate as they could from the Gentiles. So the only way a Gentile was acceptable was if they converted to the Jewish faith. But here's the beauty of Acts chapter 10, is that the Lord was bringing Gentiles into his church without the requirement for these people to first commit themselves to all the Jewish laws. The Lord was not only providing for reconciliation between God and men, but God was ushering in reconciliation among men within the body of Christ. Hatred would be replaced by love, anger replaced by forgiveness, and division would be now replaced with unity in the Spirit of God. So as we look to our text this morning, that was the longest introduction I've ever given you. As we look to our text this morning in the book of Acts, think of courage. Think of the obedience of Peter. Jewish law prohibited him. It said, you cannot do it, Peter. You cannot enter the home of Cornelius. But Peter steps forward in obedience to Christ. So verse 24 taught us last time that Cornelius had called together his relatives and friends. And remember what had happened. An angel spoke to Cornelius, commanding him to send for Peter. Cornelius simply wanted those that he cared about, his family members, to hear from God's messenger, the apostle Peter. 
Verse 25 gave us the impression that Cornelius met Peter just outside the entry to the home because in verse 27, notice what we read. We read that as they talked, they entered into the home and found many who had come together. But notice then in verse 28, Peter points out right away this tension that we've talked about here between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the first thing that he says to the group that had gathered was, you know how unlawful it is. It's the first thing he says to him. You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But what? God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. The vision that Peter had seen in the first part of chapter 10 really only dealt with unclean animals. But here we see in verse 28 that Peter understood the meaning behind all this. He got it. He connected the dots. The Lord was teaching him that he should not call any man unclean. God was the one who had led him to Cornelius. God was the one who would declare Cornelius as clean. Because God does not and never did consider Gentiles to be unworthy of salvation. Israel should have been a light to the nations. That was their job. Peter was following the Lord in complete obedience. But take a look at verse 29. Because of what the Lord had shown him, Peter said this. He said, therefore, I came without objection. As soon as I was sent for, I asked them, for what reason have you sent for me? If you've studied history, you know that British General Wellington commanded the victorious forces at the Great Battle of Waterloo that effectively ended the Napoleonic Wars. And when the battle was over, Wellington is said to have sent the news of his victory back to England. A series of stations were created back then, one within the site of the next, and they'd been established to send these coded messages between England and the continent. And the message that was to be sent back to England was, Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. But you see, a fog, a fog had set in and interrupted the message. And so the people that saw the news, it, all that they saw was the message, Wellington defeated. But when the fog cleared, the full message was received. I think that's what's going on in Acts 10 for Peter a little bit right here. I really do. Was Peter obedient to the Lord? Yes, absolutely he was. Did Peter fully understand at this point what he was doing there? I'm not so sure. Peter didn't sit around waiting for the Lord to give him every single detail of how the Lord would use him in the days to come. Peter obeyed the Lord with the information that he had. Now, starting down in verse 30. And down to verse 32, Cornelius recaps for Peter the vision of the angel of the Lord that he had seen. But we learn a little bit more than we saw last time in Acts 10. In verse 30, we see that four days had actually gone by. Cornelius had been spending those four days in a time of fasting and prayer. This man's heart was turned to the Lord. But how does he describe the angel? He calls him a man in bright clothing. Consistent with the descriptions that we see in the Word of God of these heavenly beings. After Cornelius repeats for Peter the events that led up to this, notice how he sums up the situation in verse 33. 
So I sent you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Now, everyone in that room was certain of one thing. God had brought them together. Cornelius knew that God had brought Peter to them to share something about salvation. And with this, it became clear to Peter, he understood his purpose for being there, that it was to share the words of life, the message of redemption. So take a look at how Peter begins to respond in verses 34 and 35. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Frankly, I find these two verses absolutely amazing. I find them amazing. Praise the Lord that we serve a God that shows no partiality. We serve a God that accepts men and women from every nation. You see, the clear application from the vision that Peter received is that from God's point of view, there is no distinction between clean and unclean among the nations. God does not discriminate because of race or ethnic background. In other words, let's say it like this. There is really no black church and there is really no white church and there really is no Asian church. There is the church because that's how God sees it. Edward Gibbons wrote in his history of Rome about a plague that swept in the city of Rome in the third century. And the plague actually destroyed almost half of the citizens. And then it went and made its way down to Carthage, where a pastor named Cyprian was working for God. And the masses of the people there that could, that had the ability, they fled, they left, they got out of Dodge, they left town to another place in an effort to get to safety. So their departure actually led to a horrible situation in the city. There was corpses lying in the homes and in the streets where the people had died. Some of the people turned to looting. Social order was completely breaking down. But Cyprian didn't follow that path. He gave himself to the task of preaching and guiding his church. Everywhere he went, he was encouraging, organizing, and helping the sick and dying with his own hands. And he recruited anyone he could to help him. But then a disagreement, a little bit of an argument broke out in the church because people in the church didn't actually want to help the lost. Because some of these same people, not all that long before, had been the ones who had beaten them and put them in prison for their faith. History records one of his sermons. It's a beautiful message. He responded to this by saying this. If we only do good to those who do good to us, what do we more than the heathen and the publicans? If we are the children of God who he makes his sun to shine upon the good and the bad and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust, let us now prove it by our own acts. Let us bless those who curse us. You see, here's what I'm driving at. Cornelius was a Roman, and the Hebrew people had suffered at the hands of the Romans. But there, Peter stood face to face with them, sharing Jesus Christ. God doesn't play favorites because of ethnic background. God doesn't play favorites because of skin color. But God does absolutely reject those that have the arrogance to reject him. 
To say that God is partial, to say that God plays favorites among men and women of a certain race or certain social status or an economic status, I'm sorry, but that is to deny the very character and nature of a holy and perfect God. Be careful. God's love for the nations is consistent. It's the consistent message in the Word of God. Race does not impress God. Wealth does not impress God. I don't care how much money you have. It does nothing in the sight of God. And your social status does nothing in the sight of God. It doesn't impress Him one bit. The Lord is impartial. The Gospel of Christ is impartial. And we as followers of Jesus Christ must be impartial, both within the church and when we share Christ. Because to do anything less than that, it's sin. Verse 35. Let's walk a fine line here. Let's be careful. Let's put this into context. Notice the wording with me, if you would. Whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now, what's Peter saying here? What is good old Peter saying? It cannot mean this. It cannot mean that Cornelius was saved by his good works. And by his prayer life. That makes no sense. Because the entire point of Peter being there was to proclaim the gospel in order that Cornelius could be saved. Cornelius was not yet saved at this point. Keep it simple. The message is that God wants people to come to salvation. God wants people from every nation to fear him and live a righteous life before him. No matter their status in life or where they're from. The words of Peter in verse 35 are not works-based salvation, but simply are an invitation to salvation, meaning that God in his sovereignty will extend his light to the people from all nations, light to those drawn by the Father, light to those responding to that little bit of revelation they have of God. So to fear the Lord is to trust the Lord and to worship the Lord. Those that work righteousness are those that have come to a right relationship with the Father by saving faith in Christ. Now what Cornelius had done up until this point was that he responded to the revelation of God that he had. And now Peter was giving Cornelius the invitation to salvation and to come into the blessed family of God. The invitation to be justified by faith. So what we see now in the text starting in verse 36 is Peter proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Notice, he walks right through this message. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Captain James Cook is a name that is familiar to most of us. He traveled the oceans to explore uncharted territories. And it's told that when he arrived at different places from his ship he would take a small paper bag that he would have full of seeds. And the seeds were from flowers that were from England. And when he would spread them, he did it in the hopes that they would grow. His purpose? That way, years later on, other Englishmen would land on distant shores and be shocked to find flowers growing from their native lands. You see, that's how we're to live our lives. 
We have the good and precious seed in our soul that deserves to be sown into the hearts of those who have never heard of the gospel of Christ. And that's what Peter is doing here. Don't miss the beauty of verse 36. God sent the gospel message to his people, the people of Israel. Its content is peace. The peace that Christ brings. The Christ who is Lord of all. Now this phrase, Lord of all, it would have been understood by any Roman person about like that. As a claim to deity. So think of what Peter is simply saying here. Even though the gospel message came to the people of Israel, if Christ is truly Lord of all, then the gospel and his peace are to be preached to all people and not just the people of Israel, not just the nation of Israel. Certainly the Old Testament taught this, but centuries of Jewish pride had blinded Peter, and now he understood that Christ is Lord of all. His mercy... His grace, it extends beyond the borders of the nation of Israel. And because of this, there can be no barriers within the body of Christ. You see, Peter was starting to get it. Peter was starting to come to the understanding that the food laws could not become a barrier between the Jews and Gentiles in the church because Christ had died for both Jews and Gentiles. Now, before we move on, I want you to take note that Peter taught the message was peace through Jesus Christ. Why peace? Because peace is what we're taught in Romans 5, that before our salvation in Christ, we were what? Enemies of God. Verse 10 of that chapter says this, For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You see, the lost man just isn't misunderstood, the lost man without faith in Christ, they are at war with God. You know, it's actually not about getting more people here. It's not about getting more people to church. It's not about making people feel better about themselves. What they need is they need peace with God through the reconciliation and life-giving message of Jesus Christ. So Peter starts verse 37 with this. He says, that word you know. Interesting little statement there. That word you know. Think about this concept. Over in Luke 23, we read that Herod had heard of Christ and had actually wanted to meet the Christ. And there's no question at all that word had spread of Jesus Christ's ministry. And the events of this chapter are taking place roughly 10 to 15 years after the resurrection of Christ. But how much had Cornelius and his family heard? I'm not even sure Peter knew at this point. So he started where? He started at the beginning. Peter declared to Cornelius the same message they were about to receive had already been declared throughout all Judea. The message began in Luke 3. John was baptizing people which would prepare the way for the Messiah. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, we read in verse 22 of Luke 3, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. This is the reference here in Acts. This is the reference that Peter makes in verse 38, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. You see, the word Messiah means anointed one. 
So when Peter says here, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, he was in effect saying God the Father declared something. He said Jesus is not only God, he's not only God the Son, but Jesus is also the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Peter testified that all the good things that Jesus did, the healings, the casting out of the demons, the miracles, these were not just a show. These were not just to provide entertainment. These were the proof that God the Father was with him and that the work he was doing was of the Father. In a very real sense, Peter was telling them, you've heard of the miracles of Christ. You've heard about these things. Those miracles are the proof that Jesus is so much more than just a man. And with verse 39, Peter begins to testify that he was one of the witnesses of the earthly ministry of Christ. Now the apostles witnessed the things that Christ did in Jerusalem and in the land of the Jews. But the central focus was not just on the miracles. The central focus was the death and the resurrection of Christ. And Peter refers to the crucifixion of Christ as what? Hanging on a tree. Meaning that Christ became a curse for us. Christ took the penalty of our sins on the cross. The cross, you know, it wasn't just jewelry you wore back then. It wasn't something you just put on the wall. The cross was a horrible, horrible death. It was a shameful death. It struck horror into the average person in that day. In fact, in the upper classes of Roman society, it was preferred and it was considered courteous to never ever mention in public the death of someone on a cross. Cornelius, being a Roman soldier, he must have been aware of the role that the Roman soldiers had in the death of Christ. But think about what Peter states in verse 40. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. You see, what he's saying is that there was hundreds and hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if Cornelius had any doubts at all about it, if Cornelius had any doubts about what Peter was saying, he could actually travel down the road. He could get up and go right down the road to Jerusalem and meet with others that had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He could go there. Christ was shown openly, but not to everyone. Verse 41. Not to all people. But to witnesses, notice, chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Do you sense how Peter felt honored and privileged? At the time of the resurrection of Christ, Judea and Jerusalem were filled with men and women that did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. Of course, it's still that way today. Christ was hated. Christ was rejected by most. The skeptics and those who doubted were not chosen to be witnesses for Christ. But those who loved the Son of God, those who followed him, served him, and worshipped him. You know, if you study the Gospels, Jesus didn't cater to the skeptic. Jesus did not cater to those who refused to believe. But notice again the last part of the verse. Even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead... You know, just why is it that we see in Luke 24 and in John chapter 21 that Christ ate with the disciples? Why did he do that? He didn't have to. Why did he do that? And just why is it that Peter included this detail here, of all places, in this message to the Gentiles? Why did he put it in there? Well, if you read the Gospels, Jesus testified that his point in doing this was to make it known that Christ was resurrected with a literal body, flesh and bones, and was not just some ghost or spirit. 
And in the Jewish mindset, they understood that in order for someone to be able to eat, you had to have a literal physical body, therefore pointing to a literal resurrection. But for the Gentiles, this kind of thinking was new. So what was Peter's point? Why did Peter include all of this? Paul answers this, doesn't he? Over in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And here it comes. If Christ is not risen, then, hey, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. You see, that's why the resurrection is so important. Because without the resurrection of Christ, there's no redemption of men. Our hope is in the resurrection of Christ. So Peter, he ate with the risen Lord. He shared a meal with him. Peter knew the truth of Jesus Christ. Peter knew that Christ had risen from the dead. And in verse 42, Peter goes on to say, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Christ himself taught on this. He said this in Acts 1.8 to the apostles, and he said also in his own ministry in John 5, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now this includes all sorts of things. This includes the judgment seat of Christ for believers, and it also includes the great white throne judgment, separate judgment for unbelievers. Jesus is not only alive, but he holds the power of life, and he holds the power of death. Now if you study... All of Peter's sermons, one item that normally stands out is Peter's use of Old Testament prophecies to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Perhaps in verse 43, that's where Peter was headed. He was headed in that direction. As he started to tell them that the Old Testament prophets, they all pointed to Jesus as the Christ. Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 35, Zechariah 13. Just some of the prophecies that speak of the forgiveness that the Messiah would bring. That through his name and his name alone, whoever believes in Christ will receive remission of sins. You see, the prophets wrote of the suffering. They wrote of the resurrection. And they wrote of the glorification of Christ. The prophets testified that it is through the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, that salvation would come not only to Jew, but to all who believe. That through Christ, whoever believes in him for salvation, whoever places their trust in him, they will receive a pardon for their sins. What I love about this passage is how primed these people were, how ready these men and women were to accept the gospel of Christ. Peter didn't even get to finish. Take a look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. This expression here that they heard the word, it doesn't mean just that, hey, they kind of heard it. Not at all. It means that they comprehended. There was an intellectual understanding. And they acknowledged by faith what was said to them. These men and women had no doubt as they listened. They believed the message of redemption as it was being preached to them. Because that's what it takes to be saved. Salvation is by what? Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the result was immediate. The Holy Spirit came to them testifying that they were now indeed redeemed in Christ. You see, these men and women understood the message of the gospel. They understood the message of forgiveness of sins. They believed it. They received it. And the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles. And then in verse 45, we see that those of the circumcision, the Jewish believers with Peter, they're kind of taken aback. They were astonished by what just happened. Because the Gentiles had received the Spirit of God almost identical to Acts chapter 2 when the Jews received the Spirit of God at Pentecost. Verse 46 
It reports the Gentiles were speaking in tongues just like the Jews had done. I may offend, and it's not my intention here, but let me be clear about this. Acts 2 teaches that these were known languages. These were known languages, not the vain babble and repetition of men. It was not given to draw attention to men, but to serve as physical evidence of witness to the Jews. That indeed the Spirit of God came to the Gentiles just as he had done with the Jews. So by this time in history, the Gentiles would not have actually known Aramaic. This is one of the languages that the Jews spoke. So my guess here is what's taking place is that the Jews heard the Gentiles speaking in Aramaic, giving evidence that the Spirit of God was at work. As these Gentiles magnified God, Peter answered, or in other words, Peter responded to all this by saying, Hey, can anyone forbid them water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. See, it couldn't be denied any longer. The news was out. The Gentiles had received the Spirit of God just as the Hebrew people had done. God was working among the Gentiles. They had become a part of the body of Christ. And now it was time for them to follow up by being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ in water baptism. Chapter 10 ends with Peter staying with the Gentiles for a few days, which would have no doubt included Jews and Gentiles dining together as the body of Christ. Chapter 10 ends with these new believers hungry to be taught the word of God by this apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. History is filled with some amazing stories. In 1960, Israeli undercover agents orchestrated the daring kidnap of one of the worst perpetrators of the Holocaust, a man by the name of Adolf Eichmann. After capturing him in his South American hideout, they transported him up to Israel to stand trial. And you can actually watch his trial now on YouTube. I was watching it yesterday afternoon. At the trial, the prosecutors called a number of survivors of the concentration camps as witnesses. One such person was a small, frail, worn-down man by the name of Yehiel Dainur. Dainur had miraculously escaped his own death at Auschwitz. On his day to testify, and you can see this testimony actually on YouTube as well, on his day to testify, Yehiel entered the courtroom and stared at the man in the bulletproof glass booth. See, Yehiel, he knew that this man had murdered his friends. He knew that this man had personally executed a number of Jews, and he oversaw the slaughter of millions more. As the eyes of the two men met, the tyrant and the victim, the courtroom fell into complete silence. It was filled with tension, but no one was prepared for what actually happened next. All of a sudden, Yehiel, he began to shout, he began to cry, and then he collapsed onto the floor. Now, some thought he had been overcome by hatred. Some thought the horrible memories had come back flooding into his mind. But it wasn't any of that. He went on to explain on the program 60 Minutes that he had collapsed and he had shouted because as he looked at Aikman, he realized that Aikman was not the demonic personification of evil that he had expected. Instead, what he saw was just an ordinary man, just like anyone else. In that one instant, Yehiel came to the stunning realization of this, that sin and evil, they're the human condition. Listen to what Yehiel said about this 
He said, quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he. His remarkable statements caused Mike Wallace to turn to the camera. And then he actually asked the audience some very painful and interesting questions. Questions like, how is it possible for a man to act as Aikman acted? Was he a monster? Was he a madman? Or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he simply normal? Yehiel went on to give his shocking conclusion. Aikman is in all of us. He was right because evil exists in every one of us. It's called the sin nature that has not been done away with. And it will not be completely until we go to be with Christ in glory. And so let me ask you the question. Do you hate someone because of their race? Do you hate someone because they are different? Or do you think you're better than anyone else? Or do you see others as people in need of the love of God? People in need of the grace of God? Because that's really what we're talking about. And it's the same evil in our hearts that lives in monsters that have committed genocide. Just like the young man behind this most recent school shooting this past week. You see, the lie of Satan is that men are good. But the word of God stands on opposite ground, doesn't it? The word of God tells us that every person is born alienated from God. Every person is born separated from God and at war with God. And the difference between us and the lost is that we have accepted the grace and mercy of our Lord. So as Gentile believers, because that's what we are in this room, live in gratitude for the shed blood of Christ. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul wrote that the body of Christ is being made one from both Jews and Gentiles. And listen to what he wrote about the Gentiles. He said that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now what? In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Understanding the grace and love of Christ, understanding the hope we now have in Christ, that should be the motivation for our continued walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the lesson that I want to leave you with, the lesson that Peter gives to us, is that the love of God, the love of Christ, the gospel of Christ, it must not be bound, it must not be held back by the man-made social barriers. Because the greatest love that you could show any man or any woman is to share with them the message of redemption in Christ. If you're not there yet in your faith, my prayer is that God will guide you to live in his love, to live in his grace. Before we close out, I want to thank you for listening. And if you want to keep current with our studies, there's a lot of ways to make sure that you never miss another episode. You can subscribe by email. You can get our free app for your tablet or phone. You can also use the Apple Podcast app or one of the Android apps and have all of the episodes delivered right to your mobile device. You can find all of the links on our webpage, returntotheword.com, underneath the podcast tab. And if you have a minute, help us out by sharing this episode on Twitter or Facebook, because by telling others... You help us to tell the world of God's amazing grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.